Thanks today to onceit.co.nz for supporting Happy Marks the Spot. Onceit offers premium brands at amazing prices across fashion, homeware, accessories and more. For a limited time, Onceit is offering Happy Marks the Spot listeners 10% off your entire order until the end of November. Go to onceit.co.nz and use the code SIMON at checkout to get 10% off today. I am your host, Simone Anderson. Happy Marks the Spot is full of honest chats with awe-inspiring guests that I chat to about how to navigate through the journey of life, the highs, the lows, and everything in between, unlocking inner happiness in each and every day, every now and then, or simply when one can. James Nokese will be a familiar name to those who know the New Zealand comedy circuit but he's actually someone with far more strings to his bow than you may realise. He's an award-winning stand-up comedian, having toured internationally on the International Fringe Festival. But he's also a respected theatre maker and playwright, as well as an insightful mental health commentator. James writes comedy for seven days, is a regular panellist on social issues, and has even emceed the national conference for the New Zealand Labour Party. In amongst that, he hosts his own podcast, which is based around himself and a guest eating a fried chicken in the shower. Um, I feel like our podcast might be missing something. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome James Nokesi to the podcast. How did you initially get into comedy? Is this something that you'd always wanted to do as a child? Um, no, I'm a child of divorce. Uh, my parents split when I was four. And so I think I just had that innate thing of um, y- you grow up when, and you want to entertain your parent. So uh, it was me and my mum uh, living alone for quite a bit. Um, my dad was in the area, but um, it was a pretty traumatic divorce. And my mum didn't have any family over here. I was her only family. She's Welsh. And so all the British family uh, were over there. So I just kind of was trying to entertain her. And I think a lot of comedians, you peel back the layers, a lot of them have a, a trauma early on, which makes them want to be entertainers and entertain. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, was my Did vibe. You? Yeah. I wanted yeah. to be a defense attorney. Wow. Um, I was pretty committed to that. And then I found myself living with Ben Hurley. Uh, we met at the Victoria University Drama Club and he went, hey, do you want to come do some stand-up? And I'd done a little bit in high school because I went to the National Youth Drama School. My mum sent me there to kind of keep me out of trouble and away from my slightly more troublesome friends during the school holidays. And so I, I thought I'd give it a taste. And a few gigs later, I was on the last season of Pulp Comedy, which really shows my age. <laughs> uh, I've got some uh, friends of mine who are in, in stand-up. And I forget that there's like a 10-year gap between us because all comics are immature. They went, how old are you? And I went, I was on pop comedy. We're like, oh, my tour. I was like, don't, don't even, (laughs) don't even do that, mate. So you found from like pretty early on, you found something that you loved in comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked the, there was a big adrenaline rush. I find, you know, stand up is terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. Even now I just did the um, award show on uh, last weekend and it was great because I still felt the nerves. I was going to ask you that, actually. Do you still get some sort of fear or adrenaline while doing shows even today? Yeah, but I think like a, and a lot of people who work in stressful jobs might be able to relate is that you don't stop getting the nerves. Some people do, but I find most people, they just become accustomed to the nerves and the nerves become part of a rhythm. And you sort of learn how to deal with them a little bit better. You still yeah. feel them, yeah. but you know the ways to sort of, I don't know, keep them in check and not let them 
terrify you as much. Yeah, so it's almost comforting. And you start to get stressed if you don't get the nerves. You're like, oh, you and Gilmore, uh, bless him, used to, he gave great advice, even when he was stoned, which was most of the time. <laughs> and we were backstage at a gala and I saw him pacing back and forth. And, you know, because he's young, he'd been having a cheeky smoke and playing some PlayStation. And then he was pacing backstage and I went, you and you get nervous. He went, oh, yeah, mate. No, don't do a gig if you're not nervous because it won't mean anything to you. Isn't that interesting? Because I do feel like for me, the nerves really show me that I'm still really committed to what I'm doing. Yeah. And that I want to put my best foot forward and that I do care about the outcome. I sort of feel like the day I lose nerves completely is the day I stop giving a shit. Yeah, you're still invested and you're still present, which I think when you're performing in any way, shape or form is really important. I had another little question. Who, if anyone, did you aspire to be? Was there anyone that you saw in the industry that you thought, I love what they do? In the New Zealand industry or in comedy? Just in comedy. Oh, good. Because when I... <laughs> no, 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 no shade to my, um, to my colleagues. But when I started out, I started comedy in 2002, 2003. Yeah. So there was barely an industry, you know, and, and barely anyone visible and barely anyone of colour uh, visible. Um, I mean, there were two Pacific Islanders, Virginie, and there were, in my first year, a third one came up. Was um, it truly only two when you started? There was Irene Pink and there was Etuata Ete. Ete hadn't formed a laughing Samoan yet. He was about to with uh, Tofinger and myself for the first uh, year and a half. And uh, Velu Manoseta and Canada Brown were about to become the Brownies, but they hadn't yet when I was doing my first rookie gigs. So in terms of visibility from a Pacific point of view, there was only Irene Pink and Etuata Ete, or just Ete as we call them. And then, you know, in terms of Māori, there was Mike. Mike King was doing stand-up because you had P.O. and you had Billy and you had all those guys. And the award's named after Billy, but Billy was always a more vaudevillian. He was an all-round, he was a, a sketch guy, he could sing. He was a much more rounder performer and he sort of did stand-up as part of a storytelling. So, yeah, in terms of aspiration, it was really a black American scene um, that I latched onto, as a lot of Pacific Islanders did back in the in the 90s. We sort of looked to the urban black American culture uh, as something which we could relate to as Pacific Islanders growing up in the urban culture here. And so I looked at the comics, Chris Rock jumps out, Eddie Murphy, his specials, which we had on video cassette. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, we had that VHS rolling. Uh, and you know, you could tell which parts were the popular parts because they were the ones where the tape was getting really Warned quiet. Out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and who else? Um, Chappelle, Dave Chappelle, early on, before his sketch show dropped, he had a couple of specials, which were real seminal because it was sort of really sardonic deconstruction of the kind of culture that we were used to. Yeah. I was wondering, when performing in New Zealand versus performing overseas, is there a big difference in your shows or do you find any differences in the audiences? Uh, Not as big a difference as Kiwis will think. A lot of Kiwis will go, oh, because my shows are very Kiwi. And like he was go, oh, how does it work overseas? And he go, honestly, you change a couple of things. Like I'll take 90% of the show I've just done in New Zealand and I'll take that to the Edinburgh Festival. And it still resonates well with the crowd. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, because themes are universal. And I think New Zealand, because we're an island, because we're a little bit more isolated from the world, we sometimes forget how much the world interacts with each other. So the idea of being from a different culture and talking about it openly is not really, pun the horrible pun, foreign to people in Scotland um, or people in London or people in New York. One thing that struck me when I was in New York was how much black American culture vibed with my Pacific urban culture. 
because they saw a reflection of their own culture, which is exactly what it was. That's so true, isn't it? What I wasn't used to was black American stand-up culture where the audience will stand up and point at you in affirmation. Because in New Zealand, when they do that, it's a fight. Yeah, you're, you're calling someone out, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone, someone stands up in a New Zealand gig. Yeah. You start cock your fists. They're like, all right, it's on. So they start standing up. And they're like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Yeah, man. And Lee's go, oh yeah, it's great. And I was like, oh, it's positive. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that would take a little bit of getting used to, I'm sure. Yeah. Because he's still a guy from, I'm from Lower Hutt and Newtown and Wellington. And they're you know small communities. And these cities are like 12 and 11 million people. So Just mess. Do you think that the comedy culture has changed over the years of you being involved? In New Zealand, it definitely has because our understanding of comedy has grown and our understanding of artists as well. Like a lot of artists have mental health issues, Um, not because they're artists, but perhaps because their brains are widened a certain way. The lifestyle itself, we have come to understand, can lead to mental health Uh, issues because it's constant stress. And that applies not just to comedy, but to anyone, touring artists. Oh, any big job like that, really. Any big job where there's travel, disturbed sleep patterns, bad diet, you know. Yeah, probably lack of exercise because you're on the go the whole time. Exactly. Sometimes you pick up travel weight and then you hit a festival and you lose that weight because you're stressing, but that's a horrible weight fluctuation to be carrying away. So, yeah, I think as we've come to understand the culture of the performing arts, it's evolved into... I mean, it's safer than what it was, but it's still not safe. So there's still work to go. I'm sure people all the time look at your life and assume that you are happy all of the time. (laughs) Uh, No. Oh, this is so interesting. I got um, a comment from the partner of someone who came and saw my show. And he said, how can someone so happy be so incredibly sad? But the thing is, comedians are wired like that. Like we, we generally, a lot of us, it's the sad clown cliche. I myself struggle with, um, I don't struggle as much now, but I, I have depression and a, a smidge of anxiety, I think is how it was described. <laughs> like a little dash on top. A little like, drizzle yeah, there. Yeah, like it's like a <laughs> cocktail. So I got a bit, like a little bit of that. Uh, and, and I'm a, a suicide survivor a, a couple of times over. And uh, it's funny because you ask about how comedy's changed. The trick is that we now don't treat that as extraordinary. So there's less of a stigma and a taboo around that behavior. And that makes the whole environment lighter for us to all walk in. So there's a few of us who talk about our mental health issues. Yeah, that's one thing I've really noticed and I really applaud is just how much more common it is to talk about your issues more openly and not have that fear of judgment around it and actually use it as a platform to help others in their own struggles, which I think is amazing. Yeah. And I think in stand-up, you know, um, if anyone listens to you know, the ongoing arguments in stand-up in the media, it's always, oh, I want to be able to say what I want. And the whole point behind stand-up uh, is that you can say what other people can't. And those two things are true. But I think when we look at that two-dimensionally, we think it's just saying obscene things. Whereas I think what a few of us are starting to do is say, well, actually, we can say what other people struggle to say. But what if that's not obscene? What if it's uncomfortable? What if we can attack stigmas? And, you know, not just things like mental health, but things about sexuality and sexualness. And just lay out on a table all those words that make you tighten up. Yeah. And go, all right, what can we do? 
So just get people thinking, really. Just get people thinking and make things less of a stigma and help that conversation flow, especially in New Zealand, man, because, oh, my gosh, Kiwi guys especially start talking about your emotions like, oh, oh, oh should we go for a smoke, mate? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's so true. Today I want to share with you guys one of my favourite online stores, onceit.co.nz. Once it is such an awesome local business that offers premium brands at amazing prices. I love checking it out for discounted makeup and fitness gear, but also homewares and even pet accessories for Maddox. New sales launch daily and if you sign up for their emails, you can get regular VIP access to their sales and discounts straight to your inbox. For a limited time, they're offering Happy Marks the Spot listeners 10% off when you use the code SIMON at checkout. No minimum spend. That's 10% off when you use the code SIMON at checkout. This offer expires at the end of the month, so get in quick. Was there any point in this journey that you have practiced self-care? Did you do anything in particular to make sure that you were looking after yourself? Um, I learned the hard way. I was very cocky when I first um, really started getting to mental health because I've been sober for three years. And I think Congratulations. That, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but because the sobriety, I felt like I got under control, I think I got cocky on my other mental health issues. I was like, yo, sobriety is the hardest, so I must have nailed it. And I hadn't, and I slipped. And in that slip, I burned out. And because we're not comfortable talking about burnout in New Zealand culture, I feel, I was a bit unaware that I was so close to burning out. Um, so one of the things I've been making an effort to do is to book breaks as a work. Oh, mate. So in your calendar, yeah. schedule yourself a break. Yeah. Because a holiday is not a weak thing. It's not a weakness to take a break. It's actually fundamental. It's part of my job. Oh, as humans, we need to have downtime. Exactly. Especially if you are working fluctuating hours, disturbed sleep patterns. The holiday is as much the job as the job. What well, means you can perform better in your job and actually have the energy you need to get up on stage and give your best performance. Exactly. Because my burnout happened because I was in a sustained period of heightened stress. And so I was stretched. You know how you often hear people talk about feeling stretched and worn thin? That's what it is, a sustained period. And I didn't recognize it. So uh, my uh, behavior became what most people would perceive as abnormal. But given the circumstances, given the sustained period of stress, it was real normal. And so you didn't even really notice it creeping up on you? No. And then suddenly, bang. Like, you know, suddenly I'm back in the hole and I'm completely confused. Yeah. Because I don't know why I've got here. I was doing so good. <laughs> everything was going <laughs> I'm great. Doing everything well. Damn it. <laughs> You've been so honest about your battle with alcohol. Do you think this honesty around the topic has kept you accountable? Accountable? Interesting. Um, no, I don't think it's that. I think the honesty taught me a lot about mental health practices because I actually got a lot of pushback about being honest about the alcoholism um, and that people didn't believe it. Really? Yeah, and that was... How did you find that to deal with? Traumatic yeah. in a way which I, I wasn't prepared for because I've had my identity questioned um, on ethnicity, uh, and I've made a career out of making jokes, deconstructing that. But about my alcoholism, it was such a solid thing, and it was so comforting when I got the diagnosis and I went into treatment to have it named. 
that to suddenly have it questioned, I, I didn't realize I hadn't built up uh, enough defenses within myself to have that questioned. Yeah, well, to finally know yourself what you've been dealing with and then to have someone to come to you and say, that's not true or not the truth. I can't even imagine how hurtful that would be internally. Yeah, and it really made me withdraw. Funnily enough, I, I withdrawed from social media a bit. I had to sit down and make some very hard rules about what my social media interaction is and what it... Is that because you were receiving a bit of feedback online and you're finding yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that was just a little bit, I mean, a little bit was public, but the main stuff was private, you know, private messages to my um, Facebook pages and people able to get hold of my email. Some people got hold of my phone number and they sending stuff through. They did not go through. to that extent. Because people genuinely, um, and they don't realize it, that alcohol can become such a dominant part of their lives. What I did understand about a month later, taking a step back, but still hurting, was that 99% of these people, 95% of these people were projecting. Yeah, they read my story and I was very naively perhaps detailed in my story. It had hit something within them and they, like you do when you're a kid, I'm not saying the behavior is childish, but that very primal reaction of, you know, when you're a kid and someone makes you uncomfortable, you just, totally. oh, you see something. I always think like when I was a kid, I'd see something on TV and I'd hit the TV. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't want to see it. And that's sort of what they were doing. Like yeah. they read my thing and it would spark something and they'd lash out. So it's their easiest defense mechanism too, is yeah. actually putting it on you and, and not more, facing their own the issues. The more I put up defenses... Like in, in terms of shutting down, the more they couldn't feel like they could let go of it until they'd made contact with me. Uh, so that's when they went to the extra effort and to that's find when they your went email. To the extra and effort. Um, and the texts I passed on to the police and the rest, I have some friends who work in IT and that, and they, I got them to give me a crash course in internet safety. Oh, nice. Which I think is actually a good little tip for anyone who's going to speak about their own personal problems publicly just get a little bit of lesson on because they're not actually as big things they can be quite intimidating when you stop and think about it but it's actually a lot more simpler uh, than you suspect yeah and finding steps around it because I deal with a lot of online hate daily that Mm. actually you can take that you know that if something does happen how you can deal with it because it's knowing those steps of how you can deal with it that actually make it that you can internalize it and actually rationalize what these people are thinking but like you said it's 99% of the time it's people projecting their own issues onto you and it's reminding yourself of that that actually that gets me through it yeah and the rest was just my exes and fair enough I was was a horrible horrible boyfriend so those were justified absolutely (laughs) Um, you've said that you didn't know that you were an alcoholic do you think that this is something that a lot of people struggle with? Um, I'd be remiss to speak for other people's experiences. What I do try to do is just speak on my own experience, uh, which is one of hilarious surprise because looking back, yeah, it was obvious. And everyone kind of knew, except for my close drinking circle. They're, of course, my people who I call in and go, hey, man, something is wrong. I don't know what it is because my life is flying really well. But, man, I just I can barely get on stage. Once I get on stage, I'm fine. Can you come hang out with me for a weekend? Yeah. I have friends fly into a festival in Adelaide and just hang out with me for the weekend. And, you know, we got drunk, went to gigs. I was fine, like, at the gigs. But then I was down and really caught, And we're sitting there at the pub and we're drinking and I'm getting real dark. And then I go on stage and I'm fine. And by the end of it, we concluded that something was wrong, but neither of us could... Um, <laughs> pinpoint it. Pinpoint it. But we, it was cool hanging out and drinking. Um, and then I got back to New Zealand, saw my GP, and he said, walk me through your drinks per week. And I walked him through, and halfway he said, all right, stop. 
I'm going to refer you to Narcotics Anonymous. I went into them and they went, yeah, you you have an addiction. And I went, okay, so how long until I can drink again? And they went, that's not the way it's going to work with you. Some people can. Some people can come back from alcohol addiction. A lot of people can't. I'm in that camp and I've made peace with that. And you truly feel like you have made peace in that decision? Yeah, I mean, I've also pulled a, I call it the Leonard Cohen trick, which is Leonard Cohen once famously said he'll start smoking uh, again when he's 80. He died at 82, so it's not the best plan. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Might need to find a better model. Might need a better yeah. model. But like, there is that thing of, if I knew it was my final year, I'd love to just grab some great whiskeys and just enjoy it again. Because I really did love it. Yeah. And I was a bit of a snob with booze. And I do miss it. But I also have a very deep understanding. There's a lot of things I miss that I cannot go back to. Oh, so true. And I, with food, for me, I've always said if I knew that I was going to die, I would go to town for those last few years. I wouldn't care what size I was and I would just live a happy life. Food makes me so happy. Yeah. But I know I have to keep it at bay to live a healthy and long life. Yeah. It's literally being an adult. Yeah. (laughs) It's literally just going, okay, I'm going to be alive for a while. I've got some plans. What do I need to do? And just on my little plan is, oh, I can't drink. Yeah. That's it. As simple as it is. Yeah. Alcoholism or depression, do you think one came before the other or do you think they both read their heads at the same time? Hmm. Um, it's difficult to say. I had a traumatic but also happy childhood, or quite traumatic. My parents divorced because of domestic violence. Um, they moved around from different places. Uh, I experienced quite a lot of racism because I was a mixed-race kid in the 80s. And uh, my mum was British, which brings its own strange bit of racism because she wasn't New Zealand European. She was a British immigrant. So there was a detachment from Kiwi culture. My alcohol counsellor was great when she was trying to get me to lock in on a plan. She went, you know, you haven't been sober for a year since you were 14. 14? I grew up in the hut. Um, (laughs) So pretty standard. Pretty yeah. standard. It's like, this is not shocking. It may be shocking to some listeners. Anyone who's from where I grew up is like, yeah, it's concern. I mean, I had my first drink when I was 10. Um, as a parental, have a taste of this. Um, but in terms of private drinking with mates, yeah, 14. And so she said, why don't you see what it's like going a year sober? We're going to do this real slow, day by day, week by week. And one of the tricks she taught me was just to celebrate the small things. Because I didn't stop drinking straight away after diagnosis. I didn't pro- you? No, no. I went, what? <laughs> this sucks. Oh, I've got to host an award ceremony. It was the Wellington Fringe Festival Awards, uh, which is notoriously quite a big drinking <laughs> session. And I'm, well, I'm going to go out with a bang. And I did. I consumed three bottles of red wine, uh, several beers with the minister of the church that we had the awards in, um, and then hit the whiskey hard because it was the last time. Several people checked in on me. Uh, I danced. I don't remember quite how much I danced. Those my... moves would have been good. Oh, I can so only good. imagine. Oh, I think I did a mid-air splits. Uh, did a sasa for the first time in about 15 years. Uh, and woke up on my mother's couch. And that hit things home because I woke up on my mum's couch uh, with a blanket on. And I didn't have a key to her apartment in the central city. So somehow I broke into the apartment building and into her flat and got on the couch. And that was a good kind of, all right, well, that's it. And then for every Monday for the next few years, I did a little something for myself, small treat on the Monday, 
say, all right, you got for another week. And people would check in and go, what week are you up to? Wow. Um, but slow, one step, you can't think big on this stuff. You got to one small thing. It's because big is too hard. Oh, I was exactly the same when I first decided that I wanted to lose weight. Yeah. I needed to lose half my body weight, which was 90 yeah. kgs. Yeah, right. If I focused on that number, there is no way. Yeah. And I remember in the first week I lost 4.8 kgs. Yeah. And my mentality was, oh, I've only lost 4.8. I've still got 85 to go. You know, and <laughs> yeah, I had to yeah, switch yeah. that around and I yeah. had to focus on the fact of how much I had achieved. And like you, every week would reward myself with something. Yeah. Obviously couldn't be food related anymore. No. I had to throw those bloody cream donuts out the window. Yeah. But it was a new pair of pants from Kmart or something that I could work towards that I thought, okay, this is going to keep me going. And it really does. Yeah. And it begins to feel kind of good. You kind of get a little bit of pride there. Pride gives you confidence. Totally. You get your confidence back. Um, I mean, <clears throat> only slightly a joke. Depression is pretty good for losing weight. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you got a few mates at the gym with the old getting the old depression workout going on. <laughs> so, oh man, I was shredded <laughs> uh, at one point. Thinnest days of my life. <laughs> oh man, those are uh, those two-hour midnight gym sessions because you can't sleep. That was a good time. <laughs> what makes sure that you don't go back to that dark place? Um, I've got a very strong circle of friends, very small, very tight. Um, and we're just very blunt, uh, about all our lives, but particularly when it comes to red flags, anytime, anywhere, um, flag goes up, we check in. So that becomes very important. So they keep you accountable really. Yeah. Yeah. And even if I'm not sure, like I had a, a, a friend uh, who took his life uh, a few weeks ago and I had to perform uh, on the Tuesday afterwards and I wasn't sure what that would do to my mental health. So I just I red flagged my tight circle and said, could you be there opening night? Normally I don't submit them to my opening nights. <laughs> <laughs> come when it's finished. Come when it's actually finished. Um, but I said to them, could you be there for opening night? Because I don't know. And I, towards the end of the show, I was feeling it a bit. And then we all just went out and had some fried chicken because that's <laughs> the renowned comfort food of us and had some chats. And just we were out till about one o'clock in the morning. But just sitting there, not drinking, just eating and, and talking. And So surrounded by good people, good company. Yeah, just a safe environment. I think it's just making sure you've got safe environments, whether that's a solo safe environment or a group safe environment, or if you're in a relationship, your house is a safe environment. You know, it's just making sure you've got somewhere where you can rest. And I guess talking to people and letting people in your life know what you're going through so that they can be there to support you. Because unless you're open and honest yourself, they mm. don't know what you're going through and what your true struggles are. Yeah. And for people like myself who put things out publicly, I mean, like you say, there's um, people don't necessarily see the sadness. So if they do, they see the sadness that I will allow to be seen for performance and, and for whatever work I'm doing. But the day-to-day -day stuff, that's where that circle of friends are, or, you know, the people who can hold you accountable, that's where that becomes invaluable because they see the peaks um, and the lows and, and stop you kind of going into mania, you know. You predicted Winston's rise to power. <laughs> I mean, if you're looking for a, a root cause of the depression. Um, <laughs> I thought this was a good segue. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was, um, I was touring uh, with a good friend, Mel Parsons, around uh, New Zealand. We were doing small town New Zealand. And it was the year of the election. And it was the month before the election. And everyone was talking about Winston Peters had just come round. 
And I went, he's getting in. He's going to get in. And no one believed me. They're like, no, he won't. He's a has-been. No way. <laughs> and I went, look, I'm a performer, and I'm telling you right now, he could do a comeback tour to these people and he'd sell out. Like, that's the vibe I'm getting from these small towns, man. They love the show. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that's why I think people vote him in. It's because they want the show, but uh, or they want some sort of sheriff. But yeah, that, that was a strange, I really came to understand, you know, all of this populism that we have now uh, where people are shocked by election results. I don't think I ever have been because I had that experience of seeing someone like Winston Peters, who didn't become prime minister, but definitely has played the populist card and going, that's what it's about. It's about not even about having a connection. It's about making people feel they have a connection with you. And as a performer, I understand what that showmanship is about. Yeah, I'm sure you can relate with that. So when you see all these people in world politics around now and they're doing that, it still blows my mind that political commentators are shocked by this. <laughs> you use the stage to talk about some really diverse and powerful topics. Was that what inspired you to get into comedy? Or did you see the platform as a way to speak about these things once you already had built the audience? Definitely the latter. Um, no, I got into comedy just to make people laugh. I have to remind myself of that a lot so I don't end up being a preacher. Uh, I found after a while, like I said, when I came in, there were hardly any Pacific Islanders um, doing stand-up. In fact, I mean, it's a wonderful arc to see from Irene Pink to Rose Matafeo and that wonderful journey of the evolution of Pacific stand-up. The social commentary really just came from my 20s um, and from being in environments uh, where you can't tour around small town New Zealand and not come out of it political. You can't tour around Australia and the UK and not get a sense of, I mean, you'd have to be really drunk <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to miss the injustice and the, the, the lack of care and the disconnect. Um, and I'm very privileged that I, I get to speak to these audiences and get these full houses in the middle of cities. And it's fun to like push them out of their comfort zone a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Get people thinking. Do you yeah. think comedy helps you personally deal with tough issues like racism as it's so easy to get downhearted or negative about society as a whole when considering some of the behaviours we come across? I think it really disarms a racist when you smile at them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I, I would apply that to a lot of bigotry. Um, I can't speak for other types, um, but I think when someone is trying to be hateful to you, they're often trying to do it for the visceral reaction. They get a bit of joy out of feeling they can affect you. So when you give them an emotion that they're not expecting, it really disarms them and also depowers them. And then depowering them can depower the insult that they're doing. Oh, absolutely. Even online, if I ever get a hateful or negative comment, I refuse to comment back with hate at all. It's always a positive, uplifting response because for me, that's far more powerful. And that says so much more about me and the situation than if I was to go and lower myself to them yeah. and try and fight them on that level. And often their insults are real farcical as well. Oh, absolutely. Like, if you engage with it, you're kind of like coming down to a level like, what am I doing down here? Like, <laughs> I know, you do have those thoughts though. And yeah. those words do come to my mind. I just don't type them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can still say them. Yeah. Like, you know, you're like, oh, write it, get a piece of paper, just write it down. <laughs> write it down. That's a good tip, actually. Yeah. I have to do that. I'll write one. it down and go, okay, I won't type that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> write the opposite. Yeah. I'm going to end and I would love to know where is your happy place? 
Where is my happy place? Well, I mean, I'd love to tell you it's um, eating fried chicken in the shower. In the shower. <laughs> um, I do that so much. I actually, I really like big cities. Do you? Uh, yeah. I'm an urbanesian, uh, which is Courtney, <laughs> Courtney Sinemerida's wonderful term for Pacific Islanders who, who fuck up up to a city. Um, you know, Samoans, uh, we go to the ocean and the Welsh side, we go to the lands, to the hills. Um, and I feel that kind of spiritual connection to a place, to cities. Maybe it's because Wellington is such a tight city. But I feel that in London, in New York, I struggle with it in Auckland. I always have, because I think Auckland is more a spread of villages than one unified city. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's no shade on Auckland. I just think it's built in a different way to how I connect. But if I'm walking around the park or walking through city blocks and you just feel an energy, and energy is really important to me as a performer. I'm not one of those guys who can just go on stage and if the audience is giving me nothing, just go, all right, Continue and just perform. perform. <laughs> and then like, I was like, I will work extra hard to give you energy. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's one of my safe spaces. But then I also like a good bushwalk. Oh, that I was saying before that a bushwalk is just my happy space and I love just seeing the light come through the trees and I can totally zen yeah. out. Do you ever take photographs on a, on a bushwalk? I try not to. Yeah? Yeah, I really okay. try not to. Um, I might if I get to the end mm. and want to get a little spot, you know, or shot there. But while I'm walking, I try and enjoy the walk. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. It's Meet the World. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this Raw Collective podcast. Do not forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps others to find the show and literally just takes two seconds. And make sure you head to Raw Collective's Insta page or rawcollective.co for updates on this or any other of their shows.